Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 20th, 2022. And I have to admit, it's late afternoon in San Francisco, uh, unusual time to be doing a show. have to admit, I'm in a little bit of trouble. Earlier today, I interviewed the New York Times economics correspondent, Peter Goodman, about his new book, Davos Man, uh, which is a critique of the whole World Economic Forum culture and politics, uh, the domination of billionaires. Uh, Davos is currently going on. And I noted that the... Uh, Chinese president or the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping, Yingping, uh, Jin, um, Jinping was uh, speaking at Davos. And I casually, without much thought, referred to him as the butcher of Beijing. I was thinking of the situation with the Uyghurs in China. We've done a number of shows about um, their situation. I had the US-based writer, Amelia Pang, on the show who's written a book about Chinese slave labor camps. Her book, uh, Made in China, is quite controversial. And it was interesting, having said that, the show, of course, is broadcast live on Twitter and YouTube and many other platforms, including Facebook. Um, I had a message from someone who accused me of white privilege in terms of my rather disparaging reference to the president of China as the butcher of Beijing. And I was somewhat taken aback. Perhaps it was fair, perhaps it wasn't. Uh, but it was rather convenient, in fact, because today we are talking about white privilege uh, with my guest, Chandra Nia, um, who is a, a Kuala Lumpur-based uh, authority on global economics. He runs a, an important think tank. Uh, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us from uh, KL today. Um, Chandran, welcome. I know it's Friday morning there and it's much hotter in KL than it is in San Francisco. That's right. Good morning to you and thanks so much for this opportunity. Chandran, both... Uh, it's hot for me here though, maybe not in terms of the weather, but I'm in a bit of trouble. Do you think that reference to um, the Chinese president as the butcher of Beijing, do you think that was a manifestation of a kind of white privilege of somebody like myself without really thinking about it? Is that a fair critique? Um, I would say it is a fair critique. Um, we, you would never consider calling Tony Blair and George W. Bush the butchers of, of Baghdad they killed a lot more people. So therein lies our biases. And I, uh, in my book, I do talk around these different spheres of our globalized world. And the book uh, on the chapter on geopolitics, I refer to how uh, China is essentially currently the public enemy number one of the Western world. Uh, and the fear, and I'm not here to defend China, but the fear of the Western world with the rise of a non-Caucasian civilization that is essentially equaling it and might surpass it for the first time in 500 years, is the anxiety of white privilege losing its position in the world 
to dictate to everyone what's right and wrong. So in that sense, your kind of reflects um, perhaps, uh, and because it's so mainstream in, in, in sort of Western institutions to demonize China, to call the leader of China the butcher uh, of, of Beijing is, is in, in part part of that uh, Western view that we can call everybody what we want because we know what's right and wrong. Um, define what white privilege is. It's the heart of your book, uh, Dismantling Global White Privilege. What, what does this concept mean? I've, uh, for people watching, uh, I, I pulled up a screen of the definition of white privilege on um, on YouTube, uh, sorry, on uh, on Wikipedia, and I'm quoting: uh, "White privilege or white skin privilege is the societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people in some societies, particularly if they are otherwise under the same social, political, or economic circumstances." What's your definition, uh, Chandran, of, of white privilege? Thank you. I mean, uh, maybe I'll just go and say why I wrote the book. You know, during the, uh, you know, the world witnessed the sort of outrage after the murder of George Floyd, etc. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of discussions in the US and in Western Europe about particularly the white-black uh, confrontation, the injustices, etc. And then there was an outpouring of sympathy, particularly from young people looking to redress the sort of uh, historic uh, sort of injustices, taking down statues, etc. But my view is that that definition, as you um, uh, cited from Wikipedia, still looks at it through a particularly Western lens. And so uh, I was urged to write something about uh, the issue of white privilege from a non-Western lens, which looks at it beyond the the simple race issue in the as it is, in my view, even conveniently distal to. So my definition is that white privilege um, is the best way to understand uh, how uh, oppression and dominance by Western cultures uh, and nations globally operate and are perpetuated uh, with, within countries and between countries, and importantly, with the key objective of sustaining economic superiority. And that's essentially my definition uh, in this book. And in the interviews I've had recently, um, including one with a black radio station host today, I mean, that was very new to them to understand that the, the driver of white privilege, as I try and outline, is economic dominance. And that goes back to the colonial era. Today is just through other instruments of soft power, including global institutions, et cetera. And that, that's my definition. Yeah, you, you lay it out not just in the book, but in an interesting piece uh, in Time uh, entitled uh, last year, Racism in America Should Not Take Center Stage in the Global Fight Against um, against White Supremacy. You have a really interesting point in the, in, in the Time piece, and I'm quoting you here. You say, race explains the current tensions between the West and the Islamic world and the West and China. Uh, you refer to the US State Department Director of Policy Planning, Kyron Skinner, who said that the challenging the long-term threat of China is difficult because the country is not Caucasian. Are you suggesting that US foreign policy is essentially racist when it comes to China? Oh, absolutely. I think Western foreign policy is racist 
Of course, it's led by the US, but I wrote a piece uh, four years ago for foreign policy, which I was very pleased, but kind of surprised they printed, published, uh, when the race riots- Why were you surprised? Uh, that uh, I think it was the first piece that said that uh, if systemic racism is part and parcel of American life, what makes you think that this foreign policy isn't racist? Because the very same people who govern the justice system, which is racist, this is what black people think about the you know, critical race theory, the systemic nature. Why do you think it's foreign policy? It's not racist. It is uh, naive to suggest. And then in that, I cited the, the, the sort of racist track record of many of the American presidents from Truman and beyond. And so that, that's why I was surprised, but they published it. And it was extremely well received uh, around the world. And since then, and I'm not going to claim credit for uh, making that narrative mainstream, there's been increasing talk about essentially U.S. foreign policy being racist. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I, I was born in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. And during my time, you know, we, uh, we uh, subjects of the colonies, just we were all inundated with this view that the, the Western powers knew what was right for us. Today, I understand that essentially uh, the treatment of the Vietnamese, the bombings, the, the mass murder, uh, were all part of this, um, this uh, kind of race-based view that other lives are essentially inferior. Other lives a lot of people would associate this critique of American foreign policy with conservatives, but you expand it to progressives as well. In your, um, in your timepiece, uh, you're very critical of the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who, of course, um, is politically a progressive on the left of American politics, who you quote saying that the price is worth it after being asked if the death of half a million Iraqi children as a result of sanctions was acceptable. Are you saying then that when it comes to race and racism and white privilege, there isn't much of a difference between progressives and conservatives in the United States? Yes. In terms of international relations, yes. In terms of the United States, of course, you know, the Democrats play the black card, uh, but they're part of essentially... What does that mean, the Democrats play the black card? Well, basically, they, 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 they court the black vote. Uh, they want to be seen as the liberals. They are the people who identify with the oppression of blacks. And then they but are, are you suggesting they're not really genuine, that they're racist privately, well, secretly? It would be unfair for me to suggest all of them. But the point I would make here is that um, the difficulty people have is in the United States, and this is kind of why I wrote the book, even black commentators in the US make these same sort of mistakes, right? They identify with the struggle because on the left and the liberal side, it's a struggle you cannot in any way disassociate for yourself to burnish your reputations, your reputation as a liberal and taint everybody else on the Republican side as racist. But, and so therefore it's very easy to do things like support things like take a knee uh, in sports. Anchors on CNN will talk about that uh, and uh, lament the fact that back actors don't get enough uh, recognition in Hollywood. I think this is superficial crap, really. Uh, the real issue is, and which is why even some of the mainstream media, I think, to, to now are uh, having doubts about my book, because 
What I'm saying is, it's very- So having doubts about what? Uh, uh, having, have, having doubts about how to respond to my book in terms of reviews, etc., is because I'm saying something different. It's easy to say that I support black athletes, I support, uh, I'll take a knee, but it's very difficult to accept what my book is saying. You may do that, you may not behave like a Karen, but you are not willing to accept by virtue of being a white person, but, but only supporting the superficial nature of anti-discrimination, you are unwilling to accept that you as a privileged person essentially are an oppressor. And therefore, you have to change everything about what you think about uh, how you live, etc., which is what I go into. The superficial stuff is very easy, and that's what liberals do, and that's what I, I'm arguing, and I can't, and I, as I said... Would I you define yourself as a liberal, or what term would you use to define your politics? Uh, my, I, I talk about it as a post-Western world politics, a recognition of the world from our history, I don't like the word liberals, etc., because they are also couched in sort of Western ideological terms. So I, I try not to use those terms. But I, I just spoke from my world experience, and I say we have a different worldview. We don't have a worldview in many parts of the world because it's dominated by Western mainstream media. What is democracy? What is socialism? What is authoritarian? What is a liberal? I don't want to subscribe to that. I don't have all the answers, but I'm here to encourage people to find their own narratives and not to subscribe to the Western framing and through the lens of its particular history, which is very keen to whitewash at the same time. What about white privilege itself, though? Isn't that a what some people might call a, a Western construction? Uh, as, as much of a Western construction as socialism or communism or liberalism or conservatism? Well, the term may the term may be, and I'll, I'll use that term willingly, and, uh, and and if it's a Western construct. But then, what I'm trying to do with the book, and and when people read it, it's a complete non-Western. It's a deconstruction of the Western idea of essentially what is uh, what is racism, white privilege, etc. So the term may be, and that's that's okay. Not everything that's constructed out of the Western. Uh, narrative is necessarily the terms, but the narrative that I'm constructing is extremely non-Western in its outlook. And I've had, you know, fairly good friends of mine who sit in editorial uh, boards in Western mainstream media who are saying, this is a very difficult one for us to digest because it is not a Western narrative. It completely flies against the grain of much of the, the Western narrative. What is a, a Western narrative? I, I, I'm not clear on that term. Well, it depends in different spectrums. And in the book, I have nine spheres of globalization. But let's just look at one uh, particularly. The Western narrative is uh, uh, our idea about freedoms uh, and our idea of exceptionalism in terms of democracy must be the way the world is run. Therefore, this is how it is run. And any other country that does not conform to it is essentially... Uh, a pariah state uh, must be sanctioned and we don't care if 500,000 people die because that's the price to be paid for our view of what is what is freedom and that is simply the western narrative that is being dismantled at the moment uh, and because it refuses to accept plurality and the, um, the, the trouble is that the western media is so strong living in its own little bubble it doesn't understand that the world has moved on 
the world does not buy into its narrative, but of course it still has the economic and the threat of military power, etc., to sort of bully others into uh, making sure that they conform. I also suggest in my book that um, the, the, because of centuries of colonization, uh, many of the non-Western elites have bought into this. And partly they buy into it for the same reason. If you want power, you need to be close to the centers of power. And if the power is basically held by the West, then many non-Westerners essentially I, I call seek whiteness too, because that is the way you essentially seek legitimacy within the, the circles of power that control the world. Do you have some examples of these types of uh, non-Western politicians or writers who seek whiteness, who are often oh. highly thought of? Well, um, you know, there are many examples uh, of, of politicians. Uh, I would argue that many uh, politicians in the developing world may think differently, but have to essentially conform. I mean, I come from... Uh, I, I'm originally from Malaysia, so our Malaysian politicians uh, essentially uh, understand that if they don't take the Washington line, then they get punished. So it's not simply the way they think, it's the way they're compelled to think because of the, the, the punishment that you, you, you get if you do not adhere to these things, trade packs, sanctions against China, I've got no problem with Iran, but, you know, my God, the Americans in the West are going to punish me if I don't uh, follow their line. So these are the sorts of things that put people into uh, positions. But the, the demonization of nations like Iran essentially become the mainstream. I, I, I do leadership programs with a lot of young executives from around the world from multinationals. And even the Asians begin to think that oh, there must be something wrong, terribly wrong with this country because the United States has got a sanction against it. They don't go look at what the facts are. So those, and in terms of books, yeah, it's classic, uh, you know, the New York Times book rankings will depend in terms of the pre-orders. And I, I'm thinking of writing a piece around this. The, the, the rankings depend on pre-orders and the pre-orders depend on whether you buy it in the United States first. And so the... So you mean the what you're saying is to be a, a New York Times best-selling writer probably involves a degree of, of white privilege too. Yeah, if you look at if you look at the FT rankings, you know, I'm an ardent reader of the FT, etc. Uh, I've got a whole section on, you know, on publications of books. Uh, why is it that 95% of all the books recommended in the, in the FT for the summer reading and the Christmas readings are 95% of white people? Uh, you would think nobody else writes books. But the whole structure of the industry is also one of privilege or white privilege, promoting white culture, white thinking, a white uh, intellectual thought. Uh, there's no one from China who should become a bestseller unless they talk about slave labor and they migrate to the United States or write another You mean so, uh, so an Amelia, what you're suggesting is that an Amelia Pang uh, has only been embraced because she's against China in some way, critical of the Chinese, what she calls at least the slave labor culture there? Yes. I mean, I, I read a few op-eds uh, in my time and, um, you know, I've written for the FT, the New York Times, etc. And if I write something that is um, not critical of China, but a more balanced view, I will not get published. But uh, I've got a little reputation. But if I slam China, India, etc., I will be, I will, my, my article will get in. It's no brainer. But uh, so there are people who have made careers, uh, not Asians, 
who have essentially written for a Western audience, and there are many like that. And that's their gig, and I understand it. But not uh, not your friend Kishore Mabubani. I know he's a close friend of yours. He's been on the show a couple of times. He's certainly in your camp in terms of this critique of Western policy. Is that fair? So there are others like you um, who, who, who... No, there are, but they are far, ran far between it. But my, my response is to your question about who becomes essentially... Uh, extremely well known. There is Kishore, maybe that's me, I don't know, I'm not as well known as Kishore, but the, the, the range of books by Asians, Africans, who are critical of their own countries, etc., they become bestsellers in the United States uh, and in Europe. And then there's, of course, the Asian writers who romanticize about Asia, it's about monsoons, mangoes, and pilau rice. And that's also the romanticization of Asian culture, etc. But if you put the front, if you if you write something a lot more honest, critical of the histories, etc., uh, it's very difficult. Um, but there are exceptions, of course. And uh, uh, Shashi Tharoor's book on Inglorious Empire, which I would recommend to everyone, it was interesting. The first book written by Indian, seventy years after the empire, uh, after the letter, to actually categorically look into the details of what happened in Bengal, and he was bold enough to call Churchill Churchill genocidal. We've so got a show coming up on Churchill by Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who I think is very much in your camp. We are talking with the uh, Kuala Lumpur-based uh, political analyst and writer, Chadran uh, Nair, uh, his new book, Dismantling Global White Privilege, Equity for a Post-Western World. Very controversial. Everyone will have strong opinions for or against it. Um, he has told me that I am someone who is prone to white privilege. I think he may well be right, uh, but I'm still talking to him and he's still talking to me. So it shows there can be some conversation here. Chandran, uh, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back. I want to talk about foreign policy in the new world. I also want to talk about the sort of broader intellectual origins of your thinking. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hold on, everyone. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. 
So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We're back with Chandra Nair, the author of Dismantling Global White Privilege, a very provocative new book. We've been talking foreign policy, the way in which many people, perhaps including myself, are guilty of white privilege, even without knowing it, uh, at least consciously. Um, uh, one thing I noticed, uh, Chandra, in a very interesting piece you wrote in Noema magazine, excellent magazine, about what they describe as the new imperial alliance that threatens peace in Asia. In this piece, you write about an Australian-UK-US agreement to take on China. Are, are you suggesting that the, the architecture of international politics in the early part of the 21st century, that it's increasingly being built on racial or racist lines? I'm arguing that the, the racially dominated last 100 years, and even going back, which is essentially the Western powers, and the last 200 years, which is essentially the Anglosphere, is essentially feeling insecure. Uh, Australia is a nation of 25, 25 million people. If it was not white and Anglo-Saxon, it would not have the disproportional say it has in the world. It would be a nothing place in that sense. Why is it got well, so It's a big country. Money? I mean, sorry, it's a big, it's a big country, country in terms of land, but it was essentially a country that was taken on by white settlers who committed genocide against a local person, a local population, which is that word is never used, but that is what happened. But it's only 25 million people. And what so to your question, what I'm saying is that settler community of Anglo Saxons is essentially now fearful. Uh, because its power is waning. It is unwilling to give it up. So Australia being so small and in a way irrelevant, and therefore latched itself to the big brother, the United States, and so has the UK, which has a bit sort of, you know, lost its empire. And that whole sort of, uh, within the Western world, the Anglosphere sits at the top uh, in a hierarchy of the, of the white world. And it has to confront a new world. The, the order is being resettled, reset, and it can't come to terms with it. Rather than peacefully engage in what the existential threats of this 21st century were required to do, it has decided to essentially go back to essentially a kind of East India model company. We control everything. We will moralize. We will tell you what is good religion, what is good governance. And if you don't, we will use our current economic power to essentially punish you. The world is sick and tired of this. Not just the Chinese, uh, not just the Iranians. The world is tired of it. And uh, unfortunately, there'll be a reckoning for, for these countries because they are still in a Cold War sort of mentality. But it's understandable, but we cannot endorse it. They are fearful that their time of essentially lording it over others is over. And that's really what I'm suggesting the post-Western world looks like. And we have to build a post-Western world in which the new powers that will share power with the West, the, the older West, the, the older world, Western powers. And no one's looking to see Western civilization in any way be eroded, degraded in any way. But it must learn to share power. And what we have to do in the rest of the world, the majority, by the way, 85%, ensure that we do not abuse the opportunity to rise 
in the ways that uh, we have learned from the, the colonial powers, which was to take everything, abuse their rights and lord it over others. Uh, I know you also interpret um, Afghanistan in, in terms of white privilege. How does really the U.S. defeat a severe embarrassment in Afghanistan? How does that reflect white privilege in action? Well, what I meant by that, there's so many aspects to it, but um, the idea that, uh, and, and, you know, uh, millions of words have been written about whether the United States and its allies should have gone and done what George W. Bush swore to do, which was take it back to the Stone Age. You would never talk about that, about a different nation, uh, unless they were people you looked down upon as uncivilized and of a different race and religion. But having said that, there were some would argue that because of 9-11, the United States has a right. I completely disagree with that, but let's leave that aside. Then when the United States went in with its Western allies, then it started to use uh, the, the fig leaf of uh, civil liberties, women's rights, etc., to not do what it wanted to do, which was to essentially occupy a country. And in its fight against the rise of what it called fundamentalist Islam, which I don't, I, I agree, the fundamentalist Islam is not something that the world needs, uh, then to try to bring everybody on the same side and say, we know what is best. And when it left, it, it, it had the audacity to suggest that it had essentially uplifted uh, uh, the Afghan people. And then within one month, it went on to say that because we are leaving, uh, millions of people are going to starve. This is all the sort of what I call the white privilege view of the world. It did not want to engage with the rest of the world who had better views on how to engage with people from a different culture. So when it comes to diplomacy as well, all sort of uh, international issues need to be resolved by white diplomats, be it Americans, Norwegians, or, no, uh, or Scandinavians. But, you know, the understanding that perhaps people in other parts of the world have a very a different way, culturally nuanced, sensitive ways, historical uh, uh, understandings to negotiate. That's not part of the Western uh, narrative about diplomacy as well. So Afghanistan was a classic example of thinking we know best, don't involve anybody else, hidden agendas, and then leaving and then blaming the, the locals and, of course, blaming the, the Taliban as well. Not even understanding that. And I was on a show in Singapore where I said, Calling every Afghan who wants to fight an imperial foreign occupying force a Taliban is the height of hypocrisy and a lie. Uh, we began the show talking about Davos. Um, you're very critical, not just of, I don't know actually what your view of Davos is, but you're very critical of many international organizations. You touched on that earlier. Uh, you talk uh, in your Time magazine piece about the G7. Um, the group, you say, has no Arab, African, or Asian representatives beside Japan. Do you think most international organizations, perhaps even including the United Nations, are they morally bankrupt? I wouldn't say they're morally bankrupt because that would be uh, too harsh. I do think there are lots of good people who work in these organizations, but they are all historical constructs of the, the previous era. So I have great respect for the United Nations. Uh, United Nations and many of these uh, other organizations. But uh, it is time to understand that they come from a different era. 
So the United Nations is born out of, the, as you know, uh, of the Second World War. The international financial architecture, the, the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement, was all made out of that. Therefore, you have these uh, archaic architectures. Uh, the World Bank must be essentially headed by an American, uh, no matter how poorly qualified they may be or how more qualified people might exist. The IMF must be headed by a European. Putting a white woman in charge uh, doesn't make it uh, a fair play either. So these are old structures, and um, the Western world uh, must understand that the majority, the world's majority, see through this, and they want change, and that's what needs to be changed. And that the change will not come easily because those with power rarely, rarely want to give them up. But we need these organizations. We need to improve them. And the, the majority, the world's majority, must demand change. But that is where the struggle is at the moment in terms of the institutions. And in the business world, I talk about this too. So it's not just multilateral agencies in the business world. You are, Premier. I mean, you're, of course, the author of this new book, Dismantling Global White Privilege. But many people will know you as the founder of one of the leading independent Pan-Asian think tanks, GIFT, uh, very much committed to what you call, at least on the gift side, a global institute for tomorrow. And you've written a number of other books. Um, yeah. you, uh, you're the author of The Sustainable State and yeah. um, Consumptionomics. In, in terms of you defined yourself as a, as a post-Western thinker, are you trying to figure out a, a, a post-Western uh, economic or, 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 or global theory that somehow conforms to your experience in Asia, in not just in this new book, but in books like The Sustainable State, uh, with the subtitle The Future of Government, Economy and Society, and Consumptionomics, Asia's Role in Reshaping Capitalism and Saving the Planet. You're also a distinguished environmentalist. Um, I, I, is a lot of your work making Asia, not in a racial way, but in a conceptual way, more central to thinking about the future, to models of the future? That's a great question and, uh, and, uh, and actually helps me tie everything uh, together. So my first book, Consumptionomics, and this book, uh, this, this book about white privilege, there is essentially a logical flow. The, I was compelled because of 25 years of working on the environment and sustainability, etc., I came to the conclusion that the, 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 the narrative around sustainability environment was all coming from West. The, West, the thought leaders are all Western as well. In, white privilege, in, in Dismantling White Privilege, I have a chapter on the environment as well. And said, yes, you know, yes. I, 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 a, very, uh, a, very, a very interesting chapter, actually. I enjoyed it yeah, very much. Uh, all right. So, but going back 10 years, uh, nine years ago, when I wrote Consumptionomics, I came to the conclusion after 25 years, or working on this, that uh, uh, six billion Asians in 2050 aspiring to live like Westerners, uh, Europeans and Americans, would essentially be catastrophic and would be disastrous for the planet and for everybody else. So coming to your question, my, my uh, driving force here is to get a new narrative, an understanding of the world from a different lens. Very few Asians write about this, nor, nor Africans, etc., because they still come from a mindset of the Western framing of climate change, environment, etc. So I, I basically put down the, the idea 
that simply six billion Asians cannot live like Americans. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that. Therefore, what do we do, given that the majority of Asians, Africans, Latin Americans, etc., are not in the sphere of consumption? The economic model of the post-Second World War era, but driven by the Americans in particular, is one of what I call a relentless consumption by externalizing two crops. Carbon dioxide is just part and parcel of that. But this is all part of the Western narrative, because the Western narrative is unable, and particularly now with climate change becoming so obvious and, and a clear existential threat, unable to essentially decide how are they going to change that economic model because it requires political change. Are you and suggesting then that the what you call the Western nar narrative is by definition anti-environmental, anti-planetary? Because it essentially puts individual rights or way of, uh, 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 it puts collective welfare subservient to individual rights. It's not a lie. You don't believe that. You don't think that collective welfare. Uh, uh, you, you think that collective welfare actually is in some ways more important than individual rights. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you can speak to any of the scientists, etc. But if you look at carbon... Uh, but it's not a scientific theory, issue. It's a political and a moral issue. No, but the science will tell you that you have to have collective action and collective sharing. Does that, that make you against democracy, Chandra? Uh, I'm not against democracy. I'm looking to redefine democracy. <clears throat> and that question itself is loaded, Andrew, because you're trying to suggest the moment I say... I am anti-democracy, uh, anti-democracy. Well, maybe liberal, maybe liberal democracy, Europe, liberal. Well, I, I, believe that, I believe that most uh, countries that call themselves liberal democracies are not democracies. And I would like to redefine the notion of democracy. I think we are beyond the age of ideological definitions. We're the age of what is good governance, which is the era of good governance. And good governance does not require ideological slant. But the problem is that the Western world is so uh, attached itself to this moral uh, righteous notion of democracy to essentially bully the rest of the world and say our way or the highway that it can't find a way out. But the reality is that if you want to take climate change seriously, you're going to have to have, and this is my argument in my second book, you're going to have a, going to have a, have a state that is strong and capable to impose what is in the collective interest. The pandemic has shown that many Western democracies, particularly the United States, the individual right, the inability of the state to act is essentially caused essentially a, a huge amount of suffering. And therefore, my book was written three years ago, but the pandemic has been in a way uh, a, a book that uh, a, an event that has validated many of my arguments about the need for collective welfare over individual rights. And is the model for this trend Singapore, perhaps. Uh, I've talked about to, to your friend Kishore Mabubani, who's of course based in Singapore, on this a, a kind of technocracy in 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 the name of the collective interest, a responsible, um, uh, transparent, uh, uncorruptible technocracy. Is that the model that you're in some ways sympathetic to? The the thing of the model that Singapore is in some ways pioneering. I think there are many different models. I think Singapore is one. I will be controversial on this show and say I think the Chinese model is, is one. 
I think the Japanese model is different. I think the, the Germans have a model which is slightly different as well. So we need a plurality of models. And my argument to answer your question is the big countries matter. The 21st century, that's my core argument. The big countries matter because they shape the, they shape the course of the 21st century. The two biggest countries in the world are China and India. And I often ask the stark question. This is part of the intellectual discussion. Which country will be able to navigate the 21st century's constraints from climate change to resource uh, depletion right through to water and uh, you know living with your neighbors, China or India? And the answer is very clear. Even looking like a person from India, the answer is very clear. It's China. Therefore, the dilemma for India is what form of governance system will India adopt? But India is not a threat to the West. Therefore, India's messy, ineffective democracy is something that the West never criticizes. It just is, oh God, you know, they're messy. But the Chinese method, and I will therefore even more controversially suggest that China is more democratic than India in the, in the sense that if governance is about outcomes, and in serving the people, then the Chinese government is... Essentially uh, that, that's pretty controversial. Um, yes. We'd have to get James Crabtree's been on the show to debate that one with you. Finally, uh, we are talking with... Uh, I, I know James, and he, 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 he's the guy who heads up the Policy Institute in Singapore, doesn't he? Yeah, I'm not sure well, he would be, but, uh, but, but that's another issue. I'm talking with this, uh, the author of uh, Dismantling Global White Privilege, Chandran Nir. Chandran, let's end on white privilege and race. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this story in the United States. There's a multi-billionaire, Chamath Palapataya, a Silicon Valley-based brilliant investor and entrepreneur. Uh, he's been involved in a controversy because he has claimed that the Yugar abuse is, is something that's not bothering him. He's, of course, complicated because he isn't white, but perhaps he's behaving like a white man. My question for you to end this is, can we get beyond race? Uh, Chandran, can you imagine by the end of the 21st century that we can overcome thinking about people's skin color, whether they're white or brown or black? Or is race going to become even more preeminent in terms of how we think about one another in political and economic and cultural terms as this century progresses? I think we can. I think there are good signs that the next generation, and I'm not one to always suggest <coughs> that the next generation are going to be the saviors. They've got, I think, huge problems. But I think the next generation doesn't see color too much. What I think will have will happen is we will find a way, but it requires a massive readjustment of the mindsets of Western societies that they are superior, that their ways are better, they, they know. That would be difficult because it's entrenched in the psyche of Western civilization over the last 400 years, and that would take a while. The issue I'm discussing in the book is fundamentally economic. Will the West be willing to essentially share economically with the rest of the world? Something it's not been able to do. And in fact, its rise has been based on snatch and grab over 400 years. Will it now be able to share? If it is able to, race is not the issue. It's about economics. But the use of race to essentially reinforce uh, economic uh, power is, is the problem. And that is very much going to be up to the West. Will other nations behave badly 
yes, but we uh, but we will have to address those along the way as we go uh, as we address this issue. So I believe it's very much possible, and my book has been written to try and get that discourse out of the open. If you give me one second, one ten minutes, ten seconds, Andrew. Some of my white friends have said to me, my God, Chandran, why have you written this book? It's so divisive. Can't we all just live together? They just don't understand that for the majority of the world, there is no equal playing field. I've just put it out there and said, we can live together, but you have to understand, you sit on top of the pile and people are not going to take it for a long time. And if you keep thinking that you can call all the shots, this is not going to end happily. So we need to work together. And that's what my book is about. It's not divisive. It's to bring people together uh, to relinquish power. Well, you're certainly in some ways more optimistic than some of my guests. I had um, uh, a number of anti-colonial uh, thinkers on the show who don't believe we can really get beyond race. So uh, Chandran Nair's new book, Dismantling Global White Privilege, isn't perhaps quite as pessimistic or as dire as other books but it's interesting it's controversial as he is uh, congratulations on the book chandran it's just out you. uh you're in kl at the moment stranded there because of covid i'm in california what should people be reading as we continue to be victimized by uh by the plague these days what what, what other books um would you recommend well i i'd encourage people to explore culture so I'd, I'd encourage people to go and get a book on the history of beads. It's a very interesting book. Full the history of, of the beads. Of beads, yes. B-E-A-D-S. There's a long history because beads were essentially the medium of uh, essentially exchange. Uh, it was uh, it was money before we had all this printed stuff. So I forget the name of the, uh, the author, but the history of beads. I'd, I'd suggest to people to go and read uh, The Wretched of the Earth. Uh, fanon. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, I detected a little bit of Fanon in your thinking. As a young man, were you very influenced by Fanon? Uh, many people, Fanon, uh, Malcolm X, uh, and uh, a whole, uh, Yasser Arafat, and all of those people, because I was a kid in the Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War was going on, and they told me that Ho Chi Minh was the bad guy and John Wayne was the good guy. Later, I found out that Ho Chi Minh was the good guy. So we and should read the, uh, Fanon. What about uh, Edward Said's Orientalism? I, I, I sense a little bit of that in your thinking, too. It's OK, but uh, it doesn't go far enough for me. Uh, but it's a, it's a good book. I definitely recommend that. I would recommend even Pankaj Mishra's last book, uh, The Age of Discontent. Uh, yeah, it, good book. I'd like to get him on the show, actually. I think he would be a good interview. Well, Chandra Nair, it's, uh, it's an honor. Uh, you, we could go on forever. We'll have to get you back on with uh, uh, Kishore Mabubani, uh, perhaps with James Crabtree to really argue this stuff out. Congratulations on the book, Chandran. Keep well, keep free of, of, of COVID. Yeah, we need I, guys I, like you. And uh, we'll, have, we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. I often kid James by saying, I know he's the, he's the white guy who got the position as the leading academic in Singapore. <laughs> well, I'll tell him that. Thank you so yes. much.